This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. We've got a real treat for you today. Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, joined Intelligence Squared for a live event in London. Daniel was the producer of this event. Daniel, tell us what happened. Well, Reid Hoffman, as you may know, is one of the most important business leaders in the world today. He founded LinkedIn. He's now on the board of Microsoft. And he has a new book out called Blitzscaling, which is his revolutionary philosophy for building a billion-dollar business in a very short space of time. So we put together a great event with him and John Thornhill, the innovation editor of the Financial Times. It was a fantastic conversation in front of a great audience in London. And by the way, if you like the podcast or if you don't like the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left a review on iTunes. It really helps people to find the podcast and lets us know what you think of the show. Thanks so much. Great. Well, let's go straight to the podcast now. Well, thank you very much and good evening. It's wonderful to be here with Reed. Um, Reed is a highly successful American entrepreneur, venture capitalist and author. Uh, he was one of the original PayPal team, uh, which was an astonishing incubator for all kinds of entrepreneurial talent. Uh, he founded LinkedIn in 2002 as a social network for the professional classes, um, and as first chief executive and then, I believe, executive chairman. Uh, he built, or blitzscaled, as I believe the term is, uh, the uh, LinkedIn into a company that now has more than 500 million users. Microsoft bought the business in 2016 for $26 billion. Um, and at that stage, Reed owned, I think, about 11% of the company. So you ended up with quite a large amount of money, I think it's fair to say. Um, and you uh, are now a director on Microsoft's board. Um, Reed has been an investment partner at Greylock Partners for a number of years, investing in and advising a whole slew of successful startups. And he has written three business books, uh, the third of which we are talking about this evening. He also hosts a podcast called Masters of Scale, which has included guests such as Mark Zuckerberg and Charles Sandberg, and is well worth a listen. So welcome, Reed. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So um, now I was reading up a bit about on you about you, and I believe that your first job was as an intern at a winery in Napa Valley. Is that right? Actually, I was, well, my first job at college. I ah. did have jobs before then. Okay, all right. Yes. And then you swapped a bunch of grapes for one very significant apple, I believe, <laughs> uh, and worked for them before they were yes. famous. Uh, what, what were you doing for them? Uh, for apple? Mm. So, um, well... Back up a slight bit. So I came uh, to Oxford to study philosophy. I thought I was going to be an academic. Uh, realized that uh, academics tend to write books that uh, have a specialization that 50 to 100 people would understand them and read them. I wanted to have more scale impact. 
Uh, and so I decided that software entrepreneurship would be the right thing to do. So I went back to Silicon Valley. I had the uh, luck of going to Stanford as an undergraduate, which had kind of uh, informed me about being able to create software as a new medium for how uh, we shape thought and so forth. And I started calling my friends saying, well, what's a really good uh, company to learn essentially how to uh, design, conceptualize, uh, build, and ship uh, software? And uh, one of my good friends uh, from undergraduate, a uh, gentleman by the name of Stefan Heck, said, well, my uh, freshman roommate's working at Apple. They have this new product called eWorld. Um, and everyone looks at eWorld and they says, oh, that means electronic world. It's a little bit like the E or the I moniker. Actually, it was for employee world because it was a derivative of an internal IT system that had been shipped uh, kind of publicly. But the online world was precisely what I wanted to do, and so I came in and I uh, started as a user experience designer. And you were working on a very early social network there. Well, the, the, well, there were elements of social network. I, I tend to think social network um, uh, has a, is less different, distinct from online community. It's places where your real identity and your real relationships. And so those don't start really until kind of uh, 2000 and you know, 2, 2003, 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. But I did, I found a company called SocialNet. And the reason was is the, the thing that is, uh, one of the uh, trends that has always intrigued me about how do we um, kind of be better as individuals in a society is we can reconfigure electronic space, uh, set up in a way that we can be naturally adjacent to the people that enrich our lives. Uh, and obviously, you know, part of SocialNet was a dating service, but also had a professional networking service, had a roommate service, had a activity sports service, you know, tennis, uh, you know, cricket, um, golf, whatever those things are, so that your life is made richer by the people that you go through life with and how do you reconfigure that space. And so that reconfiguration of the space has always been a persistent idea through which things to build. Now, at SocialNet, I only had some of those ideas because I still did the what I think of as the Web 1.0 identity mistake, which is you had a pseudonym that represented you rather than your real relationships and that kind of thing. But that was the, the, that was the first startup. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tell us about LinkedIn. Uh, where did you get the idea from? So, um, well, it had been a refinement of the SocialNet idea because one of the things that I'd realized in SocialNet when we did SocialNet, we emphasized the dating service because the dating service was essentially what was obvious to everyone. You said uh, most single people are very motivated to try to meet someone. You said, okay, that's what we'll focus on. Even though we're going to do a platform strategy across all these different kinds of relationships, we're going to put most of the energy into that. And one of the things I realized about entrepreneurship is that uh, being contrarian and right is actually, in fact, a far stronger path. So ideally... When you start your idea, most of your smart friends think you're an idiot, right? Uh, and they go, no, that'll never work, and that's bad. And you actually ha are testing some hypotheses that'll be right, such that a few years from then, everyone goes, oh, that's obvious. Like, everyone knew it all along that would be successful. And, uh, and that's the pattern by which you can build out kind of new areas and new green fields. And so when I was thinking about that pattern, and I was thinking about how to approach social net, in addition to kind of saying, well, don't do pseudonyms, do real names, do real relationships. Take the whole, this is an interplay with the real world very seriously. Still have it as a platform, but the network is a platform, not as the technology is a platform for you build apps in terms of how you navigate life. But 
The one that no one understood at social net was the professional networking. I was like, what's this? Right? Like, we don't have no idea what this is for. I was like, but this is fundamental. It's one of the other really important parts of people's lives. How do you navigate your, your economic life, your work life, your career? And so I was like, well, this is the way the world should be. So let's do that. Um, and that's where the fundamental part of the idea came. Now, part of tying to PayPal that was interesting was that in the, in September of 2000, uh, PayPal in August had burned $10 million in one month. That used to be a really big number. Uh, and uh, was exponentiating, had no revenue. We could determine the exact hour that the 200 million plus of venture capital we raised would run out and we'd all look, look like you know, fools. And, um, and so we did an offsite. And one part of the offsite was what should we do with PayPal? That turned out to work, which is a master merchant. But the other one was, well, what are the other ideas we have? And so I kind of sketched out LinkedIn as, as the idea. Um, not fully, but kind of like, look, it could be something like this. And then in 2002, when we sold um, PayPal to eBay, I actually looked around and I realized, wait, it still hasn't been done. Um, I should do that now. And how early did you develop a business model for LinkedIn? Um, well, so uh, we did actually follow uh, some of the advice that we put in the Blitzscaling mm. book, uh, which is we didn't really have a business model. Uh, we knew that there would be business models that would be possible. So like part of what Silicon Valley has learned from the first internet boom in Boston now is it isn't you totally ignore it, but you, you, you have like, okay, I have some ideas about how it would work, but it's not important for me to resolve that right now. I can resolve that later. What's important for me is to get to scale first. And you can see part of it on, I published the LinkedIn Series B deck uh, on uh, Greylock and on my own personal blog at reedhoffman.org. And I kind of went through what is it a deck. And if you'll notice in it, it I pitch, I say there's three different business models. Now, when an entrepreneur puts in three different business models, that's also clue for I don't know, <laughs> right? And so, um, and so we didn't really, even on the Series B, we're like, well, here's some ways we could make money when we start trying to, maybe. Did the way that you have made money correspond to any of those three original models? Uh, not, certainly not specifically. Um, uh, because the three models we choose were, were things that were analogs to other large businesses. So, for example, the top one was search ads. Because, oh, look, AdWords is really valuable, and we could do search ads too. Uh, and that obviously is not uh, how it works. Uh, part of how we were surprised by it, and this is part of the serendipity of not presuming that you know too much, and the reason why certain kinds of learnings and decisions, uh, you say, I'm going to learn those later, I'm going to make those decisions later, is I had thought very strongly that individual subscriptions expense the company would be the core business for a number of years and that everything else would be something of a penumbra around it. And so we started doing that and we were working on ads and we were working on uh, like jobs listings all at the same time to kind of get some learning of it. But what happened is we immediately started getting called by enterprises and by companies and we started getting, and they said, okay, uh, we'd love your corporate product. And we're like, corporate product? Oh, well, that might be a good idea. And so we did what is uh, kind of classically um, what happens a lot in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of different ways you kind of very quickly test things. We drafted out some, some uh, paper, right? Like just, oh, here's our interface, and like, here's the product we're working on. We hired a salesperson, put the PowerPoint in their hands, said, go see if people will buy this. Right? This is the thing we're working on. And, and I actually came back and said, I got a lot of people who want to buy. So we said, okay, take the whole company, let's build this product now, <laughs> right, as a way of doing it. So the, uh, the, the sale of, of, of services to enterprise, which is still a 
the bulk of our revenue was not any one of those three options. What was the biggest challenge you faced when you were trying to blitz scale LinkedIn? Um, well, the, probably the biggest challenge is, uh, and this is a little bit in the challenge of kind of where, where the different interfaces of contrarian and right work, is um, uh, LinkedIn, by being a network product, had no value to the first person who joined. It's because it's value of other folks. And then, you know, I invite John. John and I know each other. No value to either of us. We know each other already. Why? We're both here. Um, and then, you know, invite Sarah. And we all know each other. And so so uh, we roughly did the back of the envelope. And we thought you had to get to a, mil- a minimum of 500K to a million people to have the product start being valuable. Now, it was 50,000 people all in one area that worked, but this is virality. So part of how LinkedIn spread, and this is kind of very funny, is we kind of launched putting in 12 English-speaking countries, because we're only in English, and the country popped down. And literally from that, uh, every day we had new people writing into us saying, my country is not in your list. <laughs> right? And we'd have to add the country to the list, and we very quickly got to the, to the full list, including some geography lessons for those of us like myself who didn't know Faroe Islands was a country. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, um, uh, and so, but the growth curve was the challenging thing. And we literally spent the first year just trying to get enough people in so that the use cases that we imagined that could make people's lives a lot better would actually, in fact, function. Right. Now, that brings us neatly on to Act 2, which is the book itself. Uh, So can you define for our audience what do you mean by blitzscaling? So the crisp definition of blitzscaling is prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. And that isn't just scale fast, because part of what you're doing is you're saying, we know that we're going to be inefficient. Uh, We're going to be inefficient at management, inefficient at hiring, inefficient at allocation of capital. And we're doing so in an environment of uncertainty. We may not know our business model. We certainly probably don't know our customer acquisition costs. We don't know our unit economics. (laughs) We don't know our long-term value. All of these things that you would typically hear in a... Uh, kind of a, in, a, in a smart business class uh, in a, at a business school uh, about these things. And the reason that you're doing it is because the urgency for speed is so high that you will pay those costs in capital and inefficiency and in risk in order to do that. And, you know, canonical current examples are like Uber and Airbnb, but LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, PayPal are all examples of this. And uh, frequently, your driver for blitzscaling is competition, either extant competition or uh, competition that uh, could come. And the reason is, in the more and more global market, you get to what we call a Glengarry Glen Ross markets. So for people who are not familiar with the film, uh, it's a sales competition. There's three prizes. First prize is a Cadillac. Second prize is steak knives. And third prize is you're fired. So in that kind of competition in the market, it's very important to be in first place or at least second place. And so speed to scale really matters. And so what are the various prices and, and things you can do in order to get there? And that's part of the decision in blitzscaling. And can you give us an example uh, of where this has worked on that kind of Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross uh, competition? You have the example of Airbnb and Rocket International, for example. Can you just tell us yes. about that, what happened in there? So... Um, so Airbnb, global market for travel, everyone I'm sure is hopefully familiar with it. Um, in its uh, early days, 
Um, and it was still kind of, it was doing more of kind of the traditional wisdom of, you know, kind of uh, tr track what our costs are of acquiring customers, how we do this, how does it work. And then um, the Rocket Internet crew, which is over in Germany, which tends to do, has historically tended to do a lot of knockoffs and copies, said, ooh, that's a really valuable model. We really like marketplaces. We created the German eBay and sold it to eBay. We created CityDeal and sold it to Groupon. We're going to now do this with Airbnb, and because we're doing it early, we might be able to get a healthy percentage of the company. And so they basically funded it with uh, $50 million and said, um, you know, we're going to go out and, and, and um, you know, kind of like start building this thing, and then we're going to go to Airbnb and say, well, look, you know, we're a real threatened competitor. Most of your business is in Europe, and you should buy us for a healthy chunk of the company. And uh, the decision, the, the, the discourse around Airbnb was to say, well, if we do that, there's a whole bunch of risks that we'll take on. We'll take on cultural risks, merger risks. Um, you know, the merger of CityDeal and Groupon generated a lot of economic value, but a lot of also kind of cultural challenges. And uh, that, uh, so we decided not to do that, but in order to respond to this rock and internet people are also good blitzscaling folks, in order to respond to that, Airbnb had to start blitzscaling, which is raise a bunch of capital, start accelerating the growth engine, stop worrying about wh whether or not you have an effective cost of user acquisition, uh, start tracking density metrics for cities and travel destinations, making sure that your product was uh, substantially better than uh, you know, other products could be. And that all of that is within the blitzscaling arena because you'd say, well, do you actually know what your what you should actually be paying for customer acquisition? The answer is not really. Mm -hmm. So in this world that you're describing, it really is you've got to kill your competition or die. You think? Uh, and it, the world is becoming more and more that way because of its hyperconnectivity. So competition can come from anywhere. Um, uh, markets are, are more open available, especially, of course, on the Internet. And then, of course, when you have uh, special attributes in businesses, like, for example, marketplaces are a canonical example of network effects. Um, and network effects are basically that the value uh, that accrues to the whole network for each new node, each new participant in the network, goes up super linearly. And that means switching costs. And so the first to scale really matters. And so in that case, it's, yes, it's first prize Cadillac and second prize if you're lucky at steak nuts. Right. And now you focus in the book on some of the downsides of uh, this kind of strategy. Um, the first, which sounds somewhat off-putting to me, is kind of gut-wrenching uncertainty mm -hmm. for, with the potential for much bigger, more embarrassing, and more consequential failure. Which is, uh, <laughs> the second is that it's incredibly hard to implement and finance from revenue growth, uh, which leads on to the third, which is that you'll need investors to give you money. Uh, I find that's always very important in business. Um, now, part of the strategy, therefore, is to raise massive amounts of capital, uh, as you say, without necessarily having a business plan, on favorable terms. And that might be the kind of norm in Silicon Valley, but over here, um, bank managers, investors, d don't tend to look so fondly on that. So do you think blitz scaling is only applicable in areas where there are venture capital companies that are prepared to be fantastically aggressive? Well, there's several reasons I wrote the book. Uh, one reason was to help refine and evolve the practice within Silicon Valley and also China, which we call the land of blitzscaling. And the other was to try to get to the other entrepreneurial hubs and areas in the world and say, 
substantial areas of the um, of kind of how new technology companies are going to be built are going to be built with this these set of techniques. And so we want to build them in London. We want to build them in uh, Berlin. We want to build them in, um, in Tel Aviv. These set of techniques are important to spread and important to, uh, to get learning, both from entrepreneurs and also investors. And you know, part of the, the, the reason we got here is when the first internet boom happened and then there were a whole bunch of failures, Webvan and All Advantage and so forth, a bunch of the business world said, see, those young kids, they didn't know what they were doing, and you should actually know what your unit economics are and your customer acquisition costs and so forth. And actually, in fact, what we started learning was, well, actually, in fact, yes, there are some of these things that are just driving yourself into the wall and, and, and scale is only failing at a larger scale. But there's also a set of these uh, efforts which convert into these amazing and great businesses. And the Valley as a whole, both entrepreneurs and investors started learning that. And so... The, in part of the point of writing the book, doing these discussions and so mm-hmm. forth, is to try to get that education going. Because it doesn't mean you should blitz scale everything. Mm-hmm. And part of what we go through in the book is here's some guideposts about how to think about it and so forth. And hopefully it's much easier to raise what we call blitz capital in Silicon Valley or China than it is in other areas of the world, but it's not impossible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you have you know, Skype and Supercell and you know, a bunch of other things within the kind of European context. And so I think the, uh, the hope is to raise the game in all of the different areas of entrepreneurship. Okay. I want to return to this idea of um, blitz scaling, as you write in the book, is by definition an inefficient use of capital. And, and I think you compare it a bit to uh, you turn on the afterburners on a jet fighter, it helps you to fly double or triple the speed, but it consumes a shocking amount of fuel uh, while you're doing that. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I um, interviewed Dara Hosrashahi um, from Uber, and before I did that, I looked at Uber's numbers. So in quarter two of this year, they lost $891 million on revenues of $2.8 billion. Uh, I'm an old-fashioned financial journalist. I used to work on the Lex column, and we had a very old-fashioned view that companies ought to make money. Uh, so this is not really what they're up to, and yet they're heading for a, an IPO of maybe $100 billion next year. And the way I was looking at it was that, in a way, you could argue that they're really a great philanthropic enterprise, that they are taking money from very rich venture capitalists <laughs> and Saudi Arabian princes, and they are subsidizing all of our urban transport, which is very good of them. Uh, when, when are they going to start making money, do you think, to justify that investment of capital? Well, um, the reason why uh, investors, including potentially public market investors, will buy, and then the early investors, those philanthropists, as you're labeling them, will actually have had highly appreciated stock, which is not normally what happens within philanthropy, uh, <laughs> is because uh, the, the theory is, is that this gets to an interesting set of networks that redefine logistics, that has this huge market that eventually gets to very good uh, margins, that owning it at before its, its, its actual kind of natural place to be is, an, is a very good place to be. And just like in venture capital, because like part of the way you can look at blitz scaling is you say, well, um, it's that the only place you do venture capital is not just at Series A and Series B, which, by the way, always companies, or not always, but vast majority of those companies are losing money mm-hmm. and are essentially dead companies at that place, but you're using that capital 
to invest, turn around, turn it into a profitable business. And, um, you know, we had the, you know, similar thing that when we were going around with LinkedIn and Series B, it's like, well, we're spending money on growing a network. We have no proof of it all of raising, of, of, of how we're going to actually make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and yet we will convert this into a valuable business. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the investment thesis. And of course, there is some risk discount to it because you say, well, you're subsidizing all these rides. What happens when you stop subsidizing the rides? Is the dollar revenue flow the same? What margin structure you can get to? How are you going to have to pay the drivers? Those are all good questions. Yes, mm-hmm. but part of the bet as an investor is to say, actually, in fact, that's tunable into a very interesting business. And once mm-hmm. that business is there, it has these very great properties, mm-hmm. and that's a business that you would want to be a long-term shareholder of. I'm fascinated now that you're on the other side of the table, as it were, as an investor. So all these um, entrepreneurs come to you at uh, Greylock and say, we've got these fantastic business ideas, um, and we're contrarian and we're right. Um, and you sit there and think, well, what happens if you're contrarian and wrong? Uh-huh. So w- w- how do you judge this? I mean, is it just the experience that you've built up over the years? How do you tell whether these are good investment ideas or not, given that they don't very often, as you're saying, have any credible business model? Yeah, there's no data and, and sometimes no the business model you, you either think is wrong or disagree with or is not there. So it's, it's a combination of art and science. Um, the, the science is a set of things that you tend to look for, which is, you know, um, uh, how good is the team at building technology, adapting? Uh, do they understand how to run the race in the game? And are they going to pivot and learn and adapt? Um, are there interesting numbers in the business um, that actually, in fact, lead you to think that it'll be highly predictive? So, for example, when uh, I invested in Facebook along with uh, Peter Thiel, um, you know, everyone, actually, it was still contrarian. Everyone said, oh, it's only college students. You never make any money off college students. Yes, they use it a lot because they have a lot of time. But they don't have money. So not having money means that it's not value valuable to advertise to them and so forth. So this is not a very valuable business. But you say, look, in a... In the cohort analysis within Facebook, which is when it was a college product, it would turn on a college, and within six weeks, 80% of the campus would be using it over six times a day. And you're like, okay, you can do something with that. And those are the kinds of things that fit within the science bucket. Now, the art bucket, in terms of these judgments, is, okay, what's the investment thesis that this company is built on? What is it presumed that the world uh, could be like? And what fundamental conditions in human uh, experience, in human desire, in human wants or beliefs or participation is, is it potentially tapping into that can get to a real uh, kind of strong scale? And, uh, and do I believe that there's a reasonable shot at that future? It isn't that the plan's perfect. Usually plans change a lot, but there's a reasonable shot at the future. And when I give talks to MBA departments um, schools, one of the things I do is try to awaken them to the art part, not just the science part, because usually P&L analysis, customer acquisition costs, unit economics, you know, all things that you're very familiar with. Um, I say, well, they say, how do you pick your investments? I say, well, I invest in one or more of the seven deadly sins. Um, so you say, well, what about Facebook, Vanity, what about LinkedIn, Greed, <laughs> right? And that's because it's this art side, right, of, oh, will this tap into something fundamental in human existence? And, of course, while there is this, this desire for economic progress, it's it, economic progress, while you can kind of call it greed, is like, 
is a, as a sense of a fundamental thing in the human condition and is a good thing to create the system around. And so you go, yes, that's the world I would want to create. And so it's this combination of art and science by which I make these investment judgments. And as a matter of interest, which is the most profitable of the seven deadly sins? <laughs> um, not sure. Mm. Although vanity, perhaps. Vanity. Okay. Um, one of the other fascinating areas of the book that you talk about is uh, you have to go with counterintuitive uh, management of a lot of the companies. So you, you have various um, counterintuitive um, mantras such as embrace chaos, practice bad management, let fires burn. Tolerate bad management, yes. All right. Um, <laughs> it's practice, it says. Um, ignore your customers. Uh, raise too much money. Yes. Um, so when you go and talk at business schools, um, yes. aren't they a bit puzzled by some of these uh, things you're telling them? <laughs> yes. Uh, you try not to get laughed off stage. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> so the question is, when you're saying, look, I'm prioritizing speed, and... Uh, if I'm taking the risks of prioritizing speed and doing things that I don't know how to do very well, but in order to get there, and I am doing that because the first to scale is what really matters. It's not first mover, it's first to scale. And, um, and so in doing that, what are the things that you go, oh, that's a risk you can take. That's something that you can, can make happen. So for example, one of the uh, examples uh, that we use in the book that um, I, I, I learned this way was in early days of PayPal, uh, we had launched, we were just taking off on eBay, we were compounding at 2 to 5% per day, right? So you can think of the geometric product, uh, projection. We had three customer service people, one of whom was our office manager. So the customer service complaints of transactions gone awry or anything else was an exponential curve. And as part of that exponential curve, we were going in the hole by tens of thousands of emails per day of complaints. And so what we found is uh, that customers were discovering the fact that we had only listed our business number in Palo Alto, California. They were calling the main line, and they were dialing extensions at random, such that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you could pick up any desk phone and talk to an angry customer. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, a kind of traditional business wisdom is you should immediately get on top of this, you should worry about your MPS score, this is what you should drop all things and, and focus on this. And we said, well, if we did that, we're going to die because we really actually need to get to the scale system. So what we did is we turned off all the desk phones, we started using our cell phones. Occasionally during interviews, to make the point, we'd pull up a desk phone to an interviewee and say, here, talk to an angry customer <laughs> to get a sense. And we didn't, you know, it was amazing because, of course, the phone wasn't ringing. <laughs> right? we, just, we, we knew it in for, for a fact. And, um, and then what we did is we said, okay, what we need to do is X weeks in the future, uh, we need to build a customer service center that starts uh, accommodating the current flow and can scale with the growth of the flow. And so in part, this leads to, and you see this in multiple of these companies, um, to a principle that says, ignore your customer, which you think is insanity in business. And it's not, look, if you ignore your customer forever, you just, you suck and you're dead, <laughs> right? But it's ignore your current customer in favor of a scale customer later, because that's the thing that you really have to solve. And you can get through the, well, this thousand customers really hate you, right? And by the way, they're right, and you should feel bad about it, and you should try to do as best you can. 
but what matters is the million customers and the 10 million and 100 million and billion customers that you're creating the ecosystem for, and you need to get there in order to do it. And so the, the counterintuitive rule that I most often shop business schools with is ignore your customer. Okay. Um, can you apply blitz scaling in other areas? So I'm thinking a lot of big companies are thinking about how they advance. Um, Non-governmental organizations, can they use this kind of methodology, do you think, to solve a problem like climate change, for example? Well, there's two different questions there. There's the traditional companies, which I think can do uh, blitzscaling. It requires an ability and a relationship with your investors such that you can invest the capital. So kind of a classic example there is uh, Amazon, which I think in 2006 was a $20 billion company with 30,000 employees that you know, had you know, kind of uh, no real profitability. And you'd say, well, could a company like this blitzscale? And that's when it was where they started doing AWS. Right? And AWS actually had a huge transformation. So the answer is, but because they had faith in their vision and their management practices, the market will allow them to invest, even though they you know, basically had no profits, in order to create the interesting kind of blitzscale businesses. And I think that isn't just technology companies. It's going to be done other places. But it requires that kind of ability to invest in order to do it. Now, uh, governments, uh, climate change. So um, I do think there's, there's times where governments need to prioritize um, uh, speed over efficiency, although it's a little trickier because most governments' kind of relationship is predictability, stability, infrastructure, what's happening, the political realities of, of, of especially within you know, democracies, of, of things being contested, uh, make it difficult to do uh, sometimes things that are smart policies. And so I think it's, it's rare, but it's not impossible. It's like response to crisis or, you know, uh, like, you, like you have a disaster in New Orleans or something. And it's like, okay, those kinds of areas uh, would be the kind of things where, oh, these techniques would really apply because uh, speed matters more than efficiency mm -hmm. uh, here. And in terms of climate change, um, uh, possibly, although my uh, own personal approach to climate change uh, somewhat in uh, collaboration with what Bill Gates is doing with the Breakthrough Energy uh, Ventures is to say, look, if we can get to uh, basically relatively clean, you know, cl much cleaner and cheaper energy, there's a lot of ways we can deal with the, you know, whatever level, uh, and I think serious, climate issues are coming. Uh, and so I've been uh, branching out my own investing practice beyond where I'm an expert, which is software investing and so forth, and investing in fusion and fission and other kinds of things that could possibly do that. And, and part of that would be is, well, there, whether it's governments or private investments, you begin to find the things that work, you're going to need to scale them very quickly. Now, for example, uh, one of the things we do, we have a chapter in the book called Responsible Blitzscaling, because the idea is to say, well, there's some risk you shouldn't take. So blitzscaling, nuclear power should only really be done if you've really taken count of the risks, <laughs> right? Because, uh, you know, the risks are, are severe. But, you know, as you... Um, think through what the risk can be. And there are versions of, of even nuclear fission, thorium reaction, uh, uh, waste recycling, and everything else that can actually work in ways that, that don't cause meltdowns, don't cause explosions, don't cause, you know, like radioactive areas. And so those ones, you, for example, could blitzscale.
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. Uh, Act three, I want to talk about some of the broader aspects of technology. And you mentioned um, this responsible blitzscaling. uh, And you have this very striking quote in your book um, that your success is contingent upon society functioning properly. Yes. Um, And I think, I mean, the whole uh, discourse about technology over the past three to five years has changed radically. I think um, kind of five years ago, most people, certainly in this part of the world, still thought technology was a very cool thing. Silicon Valley was the great happening place in the world. Um, and now people are obviously have big doubts about where a lot of technology is taking society in terms of erosion of privacy, the whole discourse about democracy being hacked. Um, what's your take on, on how this debate has evolved? So, um, one of the ways I describe myself is I'm a techno-optimist, not a techno-utopian. So it doesn't mean any technology you can build is a good thing, but it does mean with technology you can build very good things. The pattern that I'm seeing now is kind of, as it were, what I think is the teenage years of some of these technological ecosystems, which is, well, some of the problems are occurring too, and we need to fix them. And so, 
you start and you say, look, we're going to make the world much more open and connected. We're going to have blogging. We're going to have social networking. We're going to empower um, you know, billions of voices to the people who were formerly uh, unable to participate in, let me share my voice. We're going to now make that happen. And there's a lot of great and delightful things from that. But then you say, well, we're, we're presuming a view of society that's all good humans and all people saying, let me stand forth and, and articulate my reasonable idea of what I think for the future, as opposed to, say, for example, internet trolls or foreign governments hacking elections or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of what I th think uh, we're seeing is the, is the, what is the way that we grow up with this technology uh, what are the things that the companies themselves are learning? Like, okay, what are the ways that we're responsible to society? What are the ways we're responsible to individuals? Part of the reason we did the responsible blitzscaling chapter is new companies go blitzscale. We say, well, look, here is the way to, to, to incorporate that responsibility while still maintaining speed in terms of what you're doing. And I think the solutions is really important is, is how you shape technology. So an obvious discussion that tends to happen uh, especially within a European context, is like how do we regulate uh, technology and what are the things about regulation? The problem is, is that most often when people think about regulation, they think about like a regulator, quasi-lawyer, saying thou shalt only do this this way or thou shalt not do this, which is kind of a lock something in amber uh, and it's not very adaptive. Uh, and so, by the way, the places that tend to have the most regulation of the sort tend to have the least innovation. Uh, and so, and yet the innovation, what's really important is what those future innovations are that could really benefit us. And so, for example, the kind of framework that I suggest to government officials is say, look, as best you can, define, call it a dashboard or a set of metrics of things that you would want to maximize or minimize, and say, hey, companies, let's negotiate this, let's talk about what's doable here, and so, for example, if you were saying, well, we're dealing with um, uh, polarization and increase of hatred and emotional anger online, you say, well, AI can do sentiment analysis. And what we'd like to have these systems do is we'd like to say, you're trending towards more compassion, you're trending more, towards more, you know, kind of uh, bridging the gap between you and other folks, and trending less towards, you know, we hate you, die, 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 <laughs> right? And so, and we'd like to, you know, figure what that out is. And then, by the way, if you do it that way, then what you're saying is, look, if you can figure out new ways of operating that continue to maximize these metrics, right, those new ways of operating, great, we're making improvements, as opposed to, you shall only do it this way. Right, I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience in just a minute. Um, one last question, uh, which is, uh, from me, which is, what is the technology that you're most excited about at the moment? I mean, what, as a, an investor and as a kind of entrepreneur, do you think is going to be the most transformative technology of our times? Um, well, so one of the areas that I am, have been highly focused on is a set of applications within artificial intelligence. It's, you know, kind of broadly known as an interesting area. One of the places where uh, uh, London has a kind of leading center in the world, so I always make sure that if I can at all, that I'm meeting with the deep mind folks when I come through town. Uh, I actually, actually literally had uh, lunch today with Demis Asabas, who's the CEO of DeepMind. And it's not just the general technologies, but also their applications. So some of the investments I've made are within uh, kind of autonomous vehicles, uh, because I think that that will be another form of, of when you think about 
uh, how do we make life a lot better? Um, like, obviously, a ton of things that are very positive about autonomous vehicles. Yes, you have to figure out how driving jobs transform as it happened, but that will happen over decades. So there's time to kind of adjust. But so that's that's kind of a um, a primary area. Okay. So questions. Who would like to ask some questions here? So um, let's start with the gentleman down here. Uh, thanks very much, Reid. Um, your colleague in Silicon Valley, Chamath Paliapatia from Social Capital, has made the press recently by saying that VC is a Ponzi scheme. Um, as more and more uh, Silicon Valley investors start going to emerging markets like Africa, do you think they should be trying to emulate the Silicon Valley model, or should they be figuring out a different way, given those comments? So, um, uh, well, there... <laughs> There are some VCs that are a Ponzi scheme. Not all VCs are a Ponzi scheme. Um, Chamath's a friend, but if I were debating him on stage, I'd say, well, maybe this is the difference between different venture firms. Um, um, and that would be they throw an elbow uh, in, the, in the football match. Um, but the, uh, the model in Silicon Valley actually, in fact, has a lot of different learnings to it. And um, there's still refinements, and I think we... Uh, there's a bunch of innovations that can happen. And there's also maybe a different fit between this and different markets. But, like, for example, part of the reason why you end up with a partnership where the partnership debates things is because it means that in this difficulty, this difficult judgment of predicting the kind of art parts of the future as well as the kind of science parts, you have uh, uh, a, in, in a, a, a uh, kind of debate-like here's the risks, here's the challenges, and so forth. So you can select the ones that work. Uh, VCs also tend to aggregate a lot of asset, uh, kind of network assets, customer uh, means recruiting, other kinds of things that happen. Those are really essential to these uh, to startups because the startup's doing it kind of the once, and the VC is incorporating the whole network and, the, and all of the talent and customers and possible later finance that they've done in kind of multiple times, and that's kind of the, the, the model for putting it together. So all of those things are really useful. Now, none of that says that, well, the exact Silicon Valley model is the one that should work for, for Africa. There may be important innovations, changes, uh, uh, kind of how you look at um, kind of what, uh, which, which parts of the game work and which parts have to be adapted. Now, China does a more aggressive version of the Silicon Valley model. Like, there's still today in China, places where entrepreneurs will get faxed a term sheet from a venture firm that they've never met, right? Which doesn't happen that often in Silicon Valley, but can happen in China. Uh, over here, please. I listened to a podcast, uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast. Um, so thank you for doing one of those, and hope you do another one soon. Um, a concept that I've heard him mention recently was uh, it's not just adding that can uh, bring you success as a business. Sometimes you've got to think about what can you subtract to gain success. Um, so I guess from that point, which one of your successes can you attribute uh, either wholly or partially to subtracting something? So not adding cash and adding people, but taking something away. Okay. Uh, other questions? Yes, the lady here in the aisle. How transferable is your model to a non-technology, non-IT product? For example, small manufacturing? So you've actually got a physical product rather than something online. Okay, very good. And the gentleman here has been very patient in the front. Hang on, hang on. Wait for the microphone. 
So you've um, you've talked extensively previously about the importance of personal network in business. Um, when you're blitz scaling, do you need a separate model for blitz scaling your personal network, or does that come naturally with the company blitz scale? Uh, one of the really key things to do in this is to constantly be thinking what you subtract. One of the places where I most learned that was in PayPal, where when we launched, we had thought we were a mobile payments company, so we used the Palm Pilot. And the email payments was a backup. The traction started happening through the email payments with eBay. And yet there was this company, you know, Palm, and we developed all this encryption technology, and we put all this energy into it, and it was a working product, and it showcased what you could do on mobile. Um, And yet one of the smart things to do was, well, no, that's taking time. Literally factor that product out. And the funny part of that story was I literally called Palm and said, hey, is there anything you guys can do to make it worth our while to keep doing this. They thought I was kidding, so they ignored me. And then they started calling me frantically after we essentially killed the product line. So uh, that's uh, one. Um, two, the uh, blitz scaling, like small business, blitz scaling is definitely not for everything. Uh, it does take a bunch of capital. It does generally is speaking on a, a competitive response basis. And generally when the prize is so worthwhile, that uh, the, uh, the cost in, in dollars and inefficiency and risk is worth the potential prize with an adventure bet. And so that's the set of trade-offs that you would be doing uh, in order to do it. So if it's kind of small manufacturing, um, you know, like it's kind of like art, artisanal or something else and it's a specific market and that kind of thing, you probably wouldn't do it there. Um, but it's the question of, you know, part of it is you get to more of these kind of global businesses that have actually do have technological underpinnings and IT or software. It's a more and more trend. So it's definitely not for everything, but that's the that's the re- that that's the vector. Um, there's one there. As I've learned from Mark, I have to say could. But what are the most interesting things that could happen in the next 20 years? And just behind you. Uh, thank you uh, for this and for LinkedIn, which has been transformative for pretty much every business I've worked with in the last 10 years, but also for the Alliance, which is my point. Uh, I love the book, the concept of tour of duty especially. I work with professional services organizations. That was, uh, that's so applicable in PS organizations, which I don't think was your target in writing it necessarily, um, but it works really well with them. I know professional services isn't one of your proven patterns here, the six that you mentioned in the book, but are there lessons from uh, uh, blitz scaling that professional services organizations could use? In terms of the next 20 years, you know, one of the, uh, the future is usually sooner and stranger than you think. And one of the greatest ways to look like a fool is to make specific predictions. Having said that... Don't let us stop you. <laughs> having said that, I'm okay with being foolish. So um, what I would say is... Uh, I would say that there is a... Uh, at least 50% chance that in the next 20 years we will actually invent fusion power. I think fusion power will have one of the significant impacts within uh, kind of climate change and so forth. And if I were uh, kind of governments, I would be focusing on these kind of creations of power and so forth because that will make a substantial difference to what I believe is a very serious and real threat on climate change. Um, and that's what I personally do, so I'm voting with my dollars and my energy <laughs> as well as the recommendation. Uh, and then, um, you know, part of the thing that's uh, interesting is uh, just about every industry is going to have some fairly serious 
transformation through um, artificial intelligence, even as the technology exists today, because data and compute is going up kind of exponentially, and it leads to all kinds of new products, you know, autonomous vehicles and you know, personalized medicine and, and, and a bunch of other things, but it also um, will also ch- kind of change the data practices within business, like how you learn what you're doing, what your customers are, what are the regularities you'd be doing, like the decisioning process. Um, so I wrote a piece for, um, as just one micro example for the MIT Tech Review a couple years back, where I said, look, what we're going to have is we're going to have these AI assistants in every meeting room that are going to be taking notes, and part of what they're going to be doing is saying, oh, this action item was assigned to so-and-so, and they're just going to make all of that happen in the flow because the amount of overhead and wastage that goes into failed communication within these organizations is quite high. So that would be like another example. Um, and then um, uh, I think, well, um, I guess the last one is I think Moore's Law is going to go to space uh, because we have cheaper and cheaper uh, launch vehicles. So historically, because it was expensive to send stuff, you would send up the most hardened tech you could. So that means you had really old transmitters, really old sensors, and so forth. Now you're going to be setting up very modern compute, very modern sensors. And in the modern compute and the modern sensors, um, the, uh, that will transform how we are actually, in fact, like for example, take you know, measuring climate change, weather patterns, a bunch of other stuff, like and communications, is all going to be in a radical transformation as Moore's Law actually, in fact, gets the space. Even though Moore's Law, by the way, on manufacturing of transmitters has come to an end or is slowing, well, come to an end, and in fact, it's slowing down currently, although, you know, maybe there'll be an invention. And then uh, in professional services, I definitely think that there's some things that could possibly uh, apply from the blitzscaling uh, context the, uh, you know, because there's ways that uh, technology can empower it. I mean, like, for example, I've seen investments in, look, here's how we can actually technologically transform how law, law firms work, uh, for example, and in how, like, essentially AI can be the paralegals, and that could lead to different kinds of models of how you're doing customer acquisition, and the customer acquisition could be a nonlinear model as a way of doing it. As an instance, so for example, say you said, well, we have these AI paralegals, and that's the free part of our paid service, and so it's the customer acquisition channel. So there's ways that you could potentially see that. None of it's really happened yet, but it's not, it's not that, the, that the concepts that are sketched within the book are just alien uh, to that, that, that zone of work. Okay. More questions, please? Hi there. Um, I have a question about your hiring practices in terms of how you build a team around you that you feel you can trust, and to what extent do you transfer uh, your talent across different uh, ventures and, and companies that you may be involved in? Um, and, and yeah, in terms of how you bring people into your fold and when, for example, when you're just starting a company, it's quite difficult to know who to trust, etc. Uh, yeah, and how do you how do you grow a team? Okay, and microphone one. Um, I understand that there's a view that chi- I'm in the AI space, China will gain a natural advantage just simply because of lack of privacy uh, laws in this area. What's your view on that? Okay, and one more do we have? Thank you. Uh, what is your opinion about the blockchain technology? Uh, do you invest a little uh, in this area as well? And uh, all the blockchain cryptocurrencies, ICO uh, consequences of this technology? Yes, so, um, right, got them. So, uh, hiring, uh, you can do hiring in a, uh, 
fundamentally, you have kind of two dials that you're doing. It's how certain are you in the hire, and then how quickly are you measuring fit and ejecting. Um, and uh, in the European context, the second one's harder. <laughs> um, uh, and that's a problem for some kinds of the blitzscaling because there are uh, sometimes where you actually, in fact, need to hire very quickly. So like at PayPal, when we were solving that customer service problem, we flew a third of the company out to Omaha uh, from Friday through Sunday, and we interviewed people in groups of 20. Now, when you're interviewing people in groups of 20, <laughs> there's going to be a bunch of people that aren't, aren't going to really fit, but you're trying to move as fast as possible. So you have to have a refactoring process uh, built in. Uh, when you're hiring with kind of more certainty, the question of trust tends to be, and this is the kind of thing that was the conceptual model for how LinkedIn accelerates capitalism, which is there's actually a whole bunch of areas where trust is really important. And the quickest way to establish trust is to find uh, essentially off-balance sheet references, not, oh, John's my friend and he's going to say really great things about me. Uh, it's, uh, it's like, oh, here's a person who's worked with this person who will talk to me honestly because I've gotten to, through, to them through a, a referral or someone they trust. And um, one of the ways that I try to tell entrepreneurs to really think about this is if I could only pick one between interviewing and reference checking, I would pick reference checking. Um, uh, you'll get a much more accurate thing. Now, you want both, but, but that's a way to kind of tune that first model. Uh, Second question um, was China and data. And the short answer is data is super important for the development of AI applications. And so um, one of the uh, things that I try to advise our European friends about is to say try as much as possible to allow, ask for uh, forgiveness versus permission. Um, you know, obviously with major risks and everything else because those AI applications of the future are going to matter. Now, there's still super important areas about like, okay, what would happen, like what could happen very badly to an individual if their medical data got out in a bad way. And so you have to be careful. But the short answer is uh, the freewheeling availability of data within China will give them a significant edge within the AI field. Uh, because basically, as you look at it, it's uh, compute data and talent, <laughs> right? And, well, there's a ton of talent over there, right? There's a ton of compute. And so that comes out of data, and what does the data, the, the data look like? Um, I'm sorry, remind me of the third? Oh, blockchain. Got it. Yep. Uh, sorry, they were, they, were, they were far enough afield in the mental <laughs> space. It was like, wait, wait, where was that one in the topology? So uh, I have invested. Um, both I bought some Bitcoin, uh, I think, in... 2014, um, and then more since, and then invested in a company called uh, Zappo, and, the, and my partnership also invested, invested in a company called Coinbase. And we think, I wrote an article actually in Wired UK in 2015 off a speech I gave at Davos on that the world actually in fact will have one or more cryptocurrency systems, I call them crypto capital systems, capital for cap, currency asset platform. Um, because that will create a, uh, a, the, the platform and the vehicle for massive financial services investment. And it will either be Bitcoin blockchain or a derivative. Now, one of the things that's very fashionable for bankers to say, mostly bankers, is say, I believe in blockchain, not Bitcoin, um, which I usually hear is, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, 
Now, there are a few people who say that who actually, in fact, know what they're talking about, but not very many. Because the issue to have blockchain is you actually have a distributed economic model. And Bitcoin is one form of distributed economic model. It's not the only one. You could have other distributed form of economic models. But you can only say I have a distributed crypto-enforced database if I have an economic model that does the distribution of the computation resources and aligns everyone in doing it. So you can't have just blockchain without Bitcoin without some significant invention that's replacing Bitcoin. And so you need to say that when you're doing it. Okay, we've got time for the final round of questions. So... Um, what do you think is the future of social media from here? We've kind of had, it's evolved from Facebook, which is quite real, into things like Instagram, where you have a lot of filtering and, and, and Apple using an emoji. Do you think we go back to reality, or does it continue go, going further and further into this fantasy world? Okay, and could you pass the microphone to the lady in front? Hi, Reed. Thank you for the talk. It's wonderful. Um, my question is fairly common, but I would like to get your views on advice and watchouts on how to choose a co-founder that when you don't have someone that you know in first degree and it's a, a friend? All good questions. The interesting thing is I do think that, that a lot of the social media tends to be around, because it's part of the whole Web 2.0 stuff, around people's real identity, real relationships, and the emotional texture of interacting. And then the question tends to come is, what's the easiest way to participate in a way that's emotionally vibrant? And part of the reason why you see it moving towards, like, for example, shorter posts, all on Twitter and other kind of posts, and towards pictures more, like Instagram, is because they're easier to produce. And then part of the reason why you see it in particular in pictures is because it's emotionally vibrant. I think that's the driving force. I don't think it's a drive or a revert back to reality, and I don't necessarily accept the premise that Instagram, even with filters, is not reality. Uh, now, the interesting thing will be what happens as we get into AR and VR and make those things easy enough. And then what my instinct will be is those things will work the more that they build up the kind of social connections and the emotional fabric of how we connect with each other. And I tend to think that's the things that I look for as, as investments and as progress. And that doesn't mean it's a straight linear line to that. Are there challenges with, you know, like do people have valid critique of all current social media products? Absolutely. There's definitely things to fix and improve. But one of the key things to always remember with technology is it's a, there's a dynamic cycle by which you can improve. So, and then a co-founder. So, um, uh, co-founders, uh, it's kind of the person, uh, person or people. Uh, and generally speaking, I find two to three people teams is stronger than one. Um, more than five is kind of very difficult to manage. Um, and uh, these are the people that, like, you're all going to be with this ship until it finds port by goal, and that you will all be a collective kind of learning system, and that you will have the depth of trust for being able to trade back and forth the ball across each other. And, of course, it's helpful to have some of the relevant skills in the, in the business you're going into, although sometimes you can learn some of those. So then the question is, I don't know the people, how do you establish it? Well, part of the thing is a set of things around, yes, you should reference check each other as per earlier talent stuff and find people who uh, can, can comment on strengths and weaknesses. But like, for example, when I was hiring Jeff Wiener and part of what I did as a post on LinkedIn about the fact that hiring a CEO as a founder is not just hiring expertise and gray hair, but hiring a, a later stage co-founder, and part of what we did is we actually spent 40 hours talking before we decided. 
And part of that 40 hours was going through the, well, what do you think were the most significant things that were failures from, for you? What did you learn from them? How do you think other people would critique you? Um, and of course you're lining up with references and doing it both directions because you're establishing um, the, the can, can you have a, a, a depth of coordination and, and learning together and ability to address difficult issues up front so that when you encounter something which is like, I can't believe you did it that way, you don't necessarily start that way. You start with, well, why did you decide to do it that way? Why was that? Why was like maybe there was something there I didn't see and, and something I could learn from. And that's essentially the kind of partnership you want to be establishing with your co-founders. Um, and so, obviously, it's easy when you say, "Hey, I've known this person for you know X months, X years." Um, but uh, you can also establish that through a set of uh, dialogue and, and covering various topics. All right, wonderful. Uh, we must end it there. Thank you very much for your questions. Thank you very much for coming this evening. And thank you, William. Really.